Welcome to Episode 8 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. Were you sort of being the technology whisperer back then? Were you training people and coaching people through as early as that? Informally, yeah. In the blindness sort of scene in New Zealand, people would ask me things because they knew that I might know, but I didn't have any kind of formal paid system set up to train people or anything like that. I realize we're jumping ahead a little bit, but when did you first uh, encounter Windows and in particular JAWS? The first time I encountered Windows 3.1 was when, you know, I was reading discussions on various, maybe they were email lists by then. I'm pretty sure they would have been email lists by then, where people were talking about how their workplaces were switching to Windows and people were genuinely fearful for their future employment. And I thought, man, this is such a shame because we're making such good progress and Windows was this thing that was like this awful demon. And then I remember a Slimware Window Bridge coming out and I remember logging into Willie Wilson's Blinklink board and downloading a copy of Slimware Window Bridge that was developed by a Canadian programmer named David Kostishin. He was another guy I interviewed on Blind Line very early on, actually. It's quite a historic interview these days. And I installed that and I had Windows on my computer, and it sort of worked. And I remember phoning him up and saying, David, do you really think that we will ever get to the point where a blind person can hold down a job with Windows? Are, are we ever really going to be able to get the same level of access? And he said, oh, absolutely. But Window Bridge just seemed quite convoluted to me. And then I remember in 1995 at the NFB convention using my first version of JAWS for Windows there. And when I sat down at a computer and ran JAWS with it, something clicked in my head and I thought, these guys have cracked it. This actually does feel familiar because I was familiar to some degree with JAWS for DOS. But more to the point, it just it's like they've kind of taken some of the DOS paradigms for familiarity and move them over to this graphical context to help sort of ease the transition. And I thought, this is rocking. This has really got potential. And so I actually bought JAWS for Windows myself at that convention and took it home on maybe it was six floppy disks. It, it was quite a few floppy disks. When do you think uh, people generally sort of began to realize that Windows was not this thing to be feared. And in some ways, uh, it could be even more accessible than DOS. I think Windows 95 made a big difference. Windows 95 just was a whole lot more intuitive. I do also remember that we were kind of being um, dragged into the Windows environment because of the things you were able to start to do with it. And for a lot of us, myself included, one of the really exciting things was real audio. And I remember running Windows 3.1. It, it might have been in the latter part of 1995, possibly. And hearing for the first time a news bulletin from NPR. I do remember that it was from NPR News in Washington coming through my computer in this very grainy sounding audio but it was audio from the other side of the world with a news bulletin just published. And um, 
when people started to talk about that, I think that got a lot of people kind of interested. You know, here was a real genuine benefit in switching, that things were starting to happen that you couldn't do in DOS. I can't remember exactly when the web began to capture people's imagination. Was it 95, 96? About that time, yes. And in 1996, after Real Audio started, again, I was thinking about how do you apply this technology in a blindness context? And I don't know why I did this, because I had a lot going on. Heidi was about to be born, and I was doing all the government relations thing, and the governance reform that we've talked about was in full swing. But I did find time to set up my own website, because I wanted to know, how do you make it go? So I set up a website called The Arena, and um, that is based on the Theodore Roosevelt quote about being the man in the arena who strives valiantly, who is and comes short again and again, and who knows the great enthusiasms and the great devotions. But if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. And it's a quote that I read in a Braille Monitor article in my teens, and it really resonated with me. You know, you've got to be in there and giving things a shot. So... In tribute to that quote, I set up my first website called The Arena, and I had worked out how you could encode your own material into real audio for streaming. By that stage, they had enabled HTTP streaming for real audio. Initially, you had to have a server to do anything at all, but then they got to the point where you could put real audio clips up on a website, and as long as the mime types was set correctly, you could stream real audio yourself. So uh, I would put up some interviews uh, from radio work that I was doing in my government relations capacity. I'd be quite frequently on the radio doing media interviews, being interviewed. So I'd put those up and various other little things. And then we introduced a thing called the voice behind the keyboard. And the idea of this was that people could send me little audio clips of themselves basically introducing themselves where they were from what they did and we would uh, put these voice behind the keyboard clips up on a web page for people to listen to and get to hear the voices that they might be interacting with on all these email lists hello and greetings from the geographical center of the united states kansas city missouri my name is jim fetgather or jim kc at sky.net I'm employed at the Low Vision Library here in Kansas City, where we do Braille transcription, internet training, and a host of very interesting activities. Now, at work, I use a PC, but at home here, I prefer to use the Macintosh. And here's what the Mac sounds like. Hello, I am a Macintosh computer. Hello, my name is Mike Mello. Um, I live in Idaho in the USA. I've been using computers for about two years now. I've had JFW for all that time. And just about, let's see, last week I upgraded to 2.0. And just a little quick thing here, let me say a little hello to everybody on the JFW mailing list homepage. Thanks to uh, Nick Allen for making such a neat uh, list, sir. And it's about time that we've had something like that. So that was another feature. And then the big one, the coup de grace, as it were, was that I had committed to keeping an updated directory of all real audio content on the web. 
<laughs> it was possible that for a little while. That would seem like a, a monumental task now. It probably wasn't quite as large back then. It wasn't, but it, it very quickly became so. So um, we sort of had to drop that objective. But again, you know, it was a, it was a pretty innovative thing for its time and especially the voice behind the keyboard thing it was a cool little gimmick so that was the arena and then I branched out a little bit kind of thinking how can I make some money on the side with this in those days international uh, long distance charges were quite high and so I got the franchise for a callback provider I don't know if you're familiar with these but I don't think we have a need for them now but what used to happen was people outside the US they were allocated a US number by one of these callback providers and the overseas person would call the US number and let it ring once and then hang up and that was a signal that you wanted to make a call using US rates then the US company would call you back immediately and you'd pick it up and you'd have a, an American dial tone on the other end and then you could dial anywhere in the world so basically you paid the cost of the call to you and the cost of the call out that you made and in those days that was still a lot cheaper for most people than calling using your own carrier at home and I got commission on all these calls just to make sure I have it right someone from New Zealand would call this US number Yep. Let it ring once, and yep. then the U.S. number would call back. I was That's thinking right. it was the other way around. That's so, right. That so there, so rates right. from the U.S. were cheaper than rates to the U.S., typically. Yes, because there was little competition in many telco markets around the world. So American rates were much cheaper, and that was a way of kind of capitalizing on them. When did you get your first cell phone? In 1989. So a long, t long time ago. They weren't real popular in the U.S. in 89. Yeah, I got mine pretty early because I was really, and it was just ridiculously expensive. I think it was, it was a little portable thing with a telescopic antenna, like the kind of thing you might find on a shortwave radio <laughs> receiver. Yeah. Or a retractable thing. It was about 2000 New Zealand dollars in 1989. So that was a lot of money. But I really wanted a cell phone. I didn't know anyone else who had one, but it was certainly a talking point. And it came in handy sometimes because I used to do a lot of outside broadcasts for the radio station I was working for in 1990. They would set up this vehicle and it had the broadcast mixer in there. And I'd go to all these places and do live broadcasts. And I loved doing that. It was very real. But every so often, there would be some sort of glitch with the gear initially. So I would be able to dial in using my cell phone and just talk, have somebody operate back in the studio and talk between tracks using my cell phone. That way I was able to get work to help me with the cost because the running costs of cell phones were pretty expensive back then too. It's really interesting the degree to which we take for granted being able to get in touch with someone regardless of where you are. It wasn't that long ago where... If I missed a bus and I, you know, I wanted to get in touch with a person who might meet me at the other end, there was no way. You know, it's funny you say that because just last night, Bonnie and I came home from a Mexican restaurant and the Uber let us off at somewhere that was not our house. And using the Maps app, 
and Ira to kind of find out where where the heck are we, we were able to get back and get inside. But I said to Bonnie, if this had happened to us, say, 35 years ago, what would we have done? We, we, we wouldn't have a clue. We, I guess we would have knocked on a random door, and it was getting pretty late, and risked some ne'er-do-well answering us. You know, I mean, we have come a long way. I also remember when I was a spotty teenager and just madly in love in the way that only a teenager can be, and the school holidays meant that my then-girlfriend, the one who was three years older than me and still is, incidentally, three years older, we would be allowed by our parents one call each during the school holidays and it would be capped. I think we were allowed one call each of five minutes because it was like $2 a minute to call. So we would say, you know, at seven o'clock on this night, I will call you. And then at seven o'clock on whatever night you will call me and you'd just be standing by the phone, you know. And then, of course, it would be 6.59 and the phone would ring and you'd jump out of your skin with excitement. And it was, you know, Auntie Mabel or something wanting to talk to mum. So, um, if, if only they allowed you to have a sleepover, it would have gotten solved. Oh, that would have been much better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's jump ahead a little bit. You... Uh, made a dramatic turn career-wise in around 2003, right? You left ACB Radio. Yes. And then? Well, it was the other way around. So I, I had been a little bit disgruntled with the ACB Radio thing, and also the exchange rate was not in my favor anymore uh, between the US dollar and the New Zealand dollar. So it was getting a bit difficult in that regard as well. And then uh, somebody from Pulse Data, Greg Thompson, who was sort of in charge of marketing there, contacted me and said, would you like to come to the Exporter of the Year Award dinner where we've been nominated as New Zealand Exporter of the Year? And I thought, well, that's nice. And initially I thought he was inviting me as chairman of the foundation's board, which I was at that stage. I went down there. And it turns out that what they really wanted to do was sit me down and talk about had I considered coming on board with Pulse Data to manage their blindness product lines. And I said, I honestly have not. Um, and they said, well, you know, clearly you, you've got a, a reputation in technology. The main menu thing is, has been helpful in that regard, too. And we think that it would be a really good fit if you would come and do this. And I had a long think about it, and I talked to Amanda about it, and I said, you know, what really appeals to me about this is actually making something. I love the idea that you can have this concept in your head. You can turn your thoughts into a real product that people go out and use and that helps to facilitate somebody in their work and their career. And so in the end, we agreed to do it and up sticks and moved to Christchurch. So another move for the family. Yes, it was a difficult one, especially, I mean, Amanda loved living in Wanganui, where we were operating ACB radio from. And also, we'd really gone to some lengths to make it a great experience there. We'd bought a lovely home. And with the help of my father-in-law, who is extremely handy with building and all those sorts of things, we had built this studio 
and it had all this nice acoustic foam and things on the walls. And uh, we had a little glass window there into like a control room. And that's where all the computers sat. They were pretty noisy back then, making fan noise and things. But because the studio was isolated and you could close the door and we had all these little cable feeders where all the cables went through, we had a nice silent studio environment. So it was kind of a dream in there, custom built for exactly what I was doing. So to leave that behind, it was a very big and difficult decision. You had no experience managing products before. How did you how did you get to know the lay of the land? When I started at Pulse Data, I had all these grand ideas about here's what we need to do to make sure that the products are on the cutting edge and I spent a couple of days meeting with people and understanding how you make this stuff and realized that things were a lot more complex than I thought. And I had this kind of, I want to go home, mummy, moment. and thinking this is just really way too difficult. But once I had a couple of victories chalked up and I got some software releases out the door, that actually was starting to make a tangible difference then I got the bug. It's really rewarding when you've been working with a bunch of really talented people and then something comes out the other end that people love. How much of the product direction sort of came from your own personal desires for the the things to work in a particular way? Some, but obviously you can't afford to run it that way. I was getting a lot of input from various conventions and meetings I was having. And also, of course, when you're working with someone of the caliber of Jonathan Sharp, who had been in this industry for quite a while by that stage, and Russell Smith, who was a very intuitive kind of guy, very understated. I remember being on the convention floor once, and Russell would sometimes just go out there and talk to customers and not say who he was, or if he did say who he was, a lot of people didn't know his name. And somebody said to me, your employee, Russell, you should give him a bonus because he was so helpful. <laughs> so he's very understated. But so all these people having input, you've got to listen to a range of sources. But I also think in the end, if you're going to do this role, you've got to have a kind of an intuition, a gut feeling for what will work. And then you've got a number of competing things to think about, like, is it feasible to deliver within the time frame that you have to get a software release out, all those sorts of things. And you learn those things over time. So you'd spent close to 20 years being able to sort of call them as you saw them and looking at technology, both, you know, Pulse Data's and others, and talking about the good, the bad, the indifferent. Now you're a spokesperson for a company. How do you sort of, you know, <laughs> rationalize those, that difference in role? It happens to lots of people. There are people who move, say, from being a journalist into public relations, say, for a politician or for a particular company. So it's not unusual, but it is a shift. That's one of the reasons why all hell broke loose when I moved from Pulse Data to Freedom Scientific. And people who weren't around then perhaps just can never appreciate how insane that was, and I'm sure we'll cover it. But one of my skills, I suppose, is communication. When I say something, people are confident that I really mean it. And I, and I must emphasize that I do. 
if I felt that I was being so compromised that I don't believe my own spiel anymore, then that will be the time to leave. And that's actually one of the reasons why I did leave post-data in the end, because I couldn't deliver in the way that I wanted to. So in all the roles that I've done in product management or in being, if you will, a very public ambassador for a product or a company, I've always very much believed in what I'm saying. I couldn't do it if I didn't. So Braille Note, Pulse Data product, correct? Mm, yeah. And, and PacMate were both out at about the same time. Yes. You can spin this a couple of different ways, but it's... How do you mean? How do you mean it both ways? How do you spin it in the pulse data way when you're when you're there, and the freedom scientific way when you're there, and be authentic in both cases? I liked the brown note a lot when it came out, and when I came to pulse data, one of the things that I identified as a strategic risk for the company was that it was not an open platform. And I said, you know, you've got an intuitive user interface here, but as people's needs become more complex, the problem Pulse Data is going to have is keeping up. And the best way to facilitate that keeping up is to develop a robust software development kit and develop a kind of community around the Braille Note. What I was actually proposing is exactly what Apple did with the App Store for iOS. I wanted there to be a way for software developers to make some money from what they were doing from, from their initiatives, to have a central place where BrailleNote users could go and pick up additional software that would install on the BrailleNote. And the fact that it was still a closed platform, but with an SDK would mean that we could shield users against viruses and malware and things because we would make sure that everything put into that um, app store, if you will, was appropriate. It was incredible that I was thinking about the, the very same thing that Apple delivered a few years later. But I got a lot of resistance from engineers, especially there were competing priorities in terms, you know, we've got more immediate needs like the Brown Note when I... Uh, came on board and only just got a browser, which is pretty fundamental. There were lots of other uh, people calling for other features. And so the software development kit was always just on the horizon. You know, we, we might do it sometime and I couldn't get traction. Meanwhile, what was happening was exactly what I predicted would happen. People's needs were getting more complex. And because the PacMate was running Pocket PC, they were able to deliver a wide range of things. And in the end, how you measure the success of a product is how many things can I do with it that, that yeah, I need exactly. to get done. What are you most proud of during your Pulse Data years? The Brownode Empower. <laughs> a lot of people think that the M in Brownode Empower stands for Mosin. It does not. I'm not that <laughs> ostentatious. It stands for mobile. Uh, and obviously, it's a play on the word Empower, but, but the M stands for mobile. The reason why I'm proud of that is that we delivered it within budget. It was quite an ambitious spec to upgrade the Braille Note and still make it relevant. But even better than that, 
there were absolutely no leaks. And one of the things that happens a lot in assistive technology, and it's happening a lot more now in technology in general, as people are kind of finding ways to assert their relevance. Think about the Apple AirPower product that never materialized, as an example, is that people promise product long before it's ready. We certainly used to get a lot of this in AT. With Empower, I was determined that we were not going to talk about it. We were not going to hint at its existence until it was ready. And I remember in June 2005, we were able to um, ship a bunch of units to the subsidiary, which was then called Pulse Data Humanware in the United States. And when we'd done that, then we put out a media release just days before the July conventions in the US, talking about the Empower with those magic words, shipping today. And that was so rare for a hardware product as complex as the Brownode Empower was. And people were blindsided. You know, our competitors were blindsided because they had no clue what was coming and they didn't have anything to compete with it. And it completely stole those conventions. Yeah. And it's hard to do that when enough people are involved in the development and the testing and the beta testing. <laughs> it's hard to keep it really quiet. Stuff just tends to leak. Yes, especially with beta testing such a, a, a radically new piece of hardware, as you say, and we, we did have a team of beta testers. So I'm proud of everybody who made that happen. It was just a wonderful moment to be able to drop that on an unsuspecting market like that. When BrailleNote was launched in 2000, it opened a world of portable access to information never before available to blind people. It was the first information management tool to give blind people access to the benefits of Microsoft Windows CE. Since then, the BrailleNote has stayed on the cutting edge, so that even a person who bought a BrailleNote five years ago has been able to stay current. Now, the next generation of BrailleNote and VoiceNote is here. BrailleNote Empower from Humanware is the latest word in mobile functionality. Still based on Microsoft Windows CE and HumanWare's award-winning Keysoft technology, BrailleNote Empower delivers even more functionality with the speed and connectivity options you need to ensure you can process information how you want, when you want. It's faster. You'll feel the processor power the moment you turn it on. The X-Scale processor in BrailleNote Empower means you can load a document containing many hundreds of pages and it's ready in no time. Disk name, flash disk, 102,924,288 characters free. Disk size, 126,287,872 characters. Brownnote Empower comes equipped to ensure you never need to think twice about what documents to have on hand. With a hooping 128 megabytes of user storage built right into BrowNote Empower, you can store hundreds of thousands of pages of information or take an audiobook or two on the road as you travel. During this time, as I recall, you were blogging because I remember reading a blog post which completely shocked me, which talked about your dissolution of your marriage and falling in love with someone new. Yes, why? I, why was I blogging? Yes, why would you why why would you possibly blog about something like that in such detail? Well, 
going back to the beginning, I started blogging after I left ACB Radio because people kept saying, we want a way to keep up with what you're doing. And obviously, I couldn't blog about the things I was doing at Pulse Data too much because a lot of those things were commercially sensitive. And my kids had been a part of ACB Radio as well. That It wasn't really by design, but they would wander into the studio and people would really like it. And so then they they knew that, they, that people liked hearing them, so they would deliberately wander in. It was kind of fun and spontaneous. And it took me back to my own uh, youth when I'd been on the radio from a very early age myself. So when Amanda and I were divorcing, I knew that there would be questions and there was a very difficult decision for me to make. Do I just kind of let it naturally get out there or do I take the matter into my own hands in terms of how I explain this and at least get the story out there that's the correct one because if you leave a void, people will fill it and they will often fill it with sometimes not even a slightly incorrect version of the facts, but a completely erroneous story. <laughs> this is one of the things that I have found so difficult about having a bit of a profile is that people will just make stuff up. You know, suggest that I have done things or whatever that if you just examined the facts that are in the public domain, I couldn't possibly have done. And I often say to people, man, if I'd led the life that some people who are just smearing on the internet say I have, I would have had a really, really interesting life. And so I knew whatever I did, I was going to be very heavily criticized. And my reputation was going to take an enormous hit. And um, I felt, well, at least if I'm going to have to take that medicine, then I may as well take it with the full facts actually being out there in my own words. And at least people can understand that it was the most agonizing, horrible, tough decision of my life. And so that's why I wrote the post. And some people threw up their hands in horror and said, my God, this is too much information. It makes me cringe to read it. And then other people, uh, you know, I put that post out just before the 2005 conventions and other people came up to me who I didn't even know or who I didn't think thought very much of me and put their arms around me and gave me a massive hug and said that took a lot of guts to do that. And uh, some even said I've been there myself. So... I don't know. The jury's out about whether it was the right thing to do. It required me to come to terms with what I had become. It's hard now that there are so many choices out there, people podcasting and doing internet streaming and sort of being little internet celebrities. It's easy now. In the days that we are talking about, podcasting was only just starting, but ACB radio was still a big thing I just happened to come along at the right time and I had to accept that I had become this qu quite famous figure in certain circles. And so I knew that if you're going to make a decision like this, you're 
going to get comment. Feel free not to answer this. Did you pass it by Amanda before publishing? Absolutely. Yes, I did. Yeah. It's, it's the least she deserved. And while there were some pretty vitriolic comments on that blog post from some people, Amanda actually left a comment on that post wishing me well. So I'm not saying that I didn't cause her a lot of heartache, but she and I have always put the children first. We are now really good friends and turn up to each other's parties and laugh and joke and and things like that. But even back then, when things were at their most raw, she was still able to leave a blog comment wishing me well. Let's go back to your product management (laughs) career. What prompted you to leave Pulse Data and to join Freedom? The first thing that happened that really started that journey was Russell Smith dying in a plane crash. My goodness, and I still find that quite hard to talk about. Um, but I was, I was, um, I was in in the United States at the time, and got a call um, that 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 told me that Russell had died, and I immediately flew back home for the funeral. Russell was someone who meant a lot to me, and I'll tell you something about that too. I can't even remember what it was now, but a few days before he died, he and I had a bit of a disagreement. I can't remember for the life of me what it was to do with. It was some product or policy issue to do with one of the products. And uh, we were having a pretty robust email exchange because he and I are both New Zealanders. New Zealanders aren't terribly formal people, so it doesn't matter that you know Russell was my boss. If I think he's being an idiot, I'll tell him he's being an idiot. But we patched it up. I emailed him and I said, "Look, I don't want to argue with you, Russell. You know, in the end, you know, if this is what you want, we'll do it. We'll do it your way. It's your company." And he said, "No, that's fine. I understand where you're coming from." And it was all very amicable. And I, I keep thinking what I would be carrying if we hadn't fixed that before he died. And that really changed me. It made me much more willing to reach out with an olive branch when I've fallen out with someone I genuinely care for. So I have him to thank for that, and I'm just so grateful that we managed to do that. But anyway, it's not supposed to happen to people, you know, it's always happens to those other people. Yeah, it was it was a very surreal time. And because I was in the right time zone and there was understandably a lot of grief back in New Zealand at the head uh, office, I was tasked with contacting a number of people who needed to know in the US and um, and even back home to some degree and making those phone calls and telling people that he had died was just awful. It was, the whole thing was just, it was a nightmare few weeks. So the company had to pick up the pieces, and eventually the board decided to appoint someone from outside the company. By that stage, Pulse Data had merged with Visuade, who were making things like uh, the Victor Reader products and they had the Maestro and the Trekker. And I was pretty instrumental in the due diligence process and some of the things surrounding uh, that 
that well, it was an acquisition. A Pulsator bought Visuaid, but uh, at that stage, the board wanted to keep the company in New Zealand, and understandably, Gilles Pepin from Visuaid was not keen to move to New Zealand permanently. So they appointed somebody outside the company. When you're a CEO and you come into a new company, there are a number of things that you can do. My personal favorite, and I speak as a CEO coming into a new new company, is you should listen and learn and then lead. Not everybody chooses to do that. Some people choose to sweep the place clean with a new broom. And that's what the new CEO of uh, Pulse Data did, whose name was Richard Mander. He brought a lot of his own people in. He seemed to not respect the caliber of the products that had been produced to that time. So there was a lot of change. Uh, there were resignations and there were also uh, some people who were kind of eased out of the company. But I hung in there and uh, one of the opportunities I saw was the ability to restructure the way things were done. So the way that things were done at Pulse Data in those days was that you would have a product marketing department and they were the budget holder. They would essentially go to the software development department like you would go to a store and you would say, I want to buy, you know, a new database feature in the next release of Keysoft, please. And uh, can I also have a side of uh, an adventure game interpreter or whatever? And they would tell you how much it cost. And you would haggle with them and say, surely it doesn't cost that many you know, dollars and that much resource to do this. And you'd eventually agree on a price and deliverables. That's a good model in theory. One of the problems with it is that when things inevitably go wrong and when there's slippage, you get a lot of internal argument. You get argument about, well, you didn't tell me specifically enough what it is you wanted to buy. Now I'm having trouble making it now that you've made it clearer to me. And of course, the people who are doing the buying will say, well, you guys are hopeless. You don't know what you're doing. It causes friction. And so my proposal was we try restructuring and we have a, a blindness division and a low vision division and that there be a clear head of that who was in charge of all aspects of it be it marketing software development etc and my hope was that i would manage the blindness side completely obviously i had a lot of institutional knowledge and a lot of leadership experience in various roles so we went through that process that was agreed to i applied for the role and then the chief executive decided to appoint somebody from outside the company who had no knowledge of the industry, who he had worked with in a previous role. Now, I was then expected to train this person. And, you know, with all due respect, I kind of felt that he didn't know who, who, who he was dealing with and who he had. And I just said that this is not going to work. I've come too far to be in this sort of predicament. And so I got on the phones and I called uh, a number of people and I said, I just want you to know that I'm here and I'm ready to make a move. Now, Eric Damry, he had been on at me at conventions for ages. You know, he'd sort of say to me, when are you going to come over and, and, and work for us? And I would say, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that to Russell. Russell is important to me. But there was no Russell. So then I was, you know, I had a chat to Eric. I had a chat to some other people who I probably shouldn't name who were also talking to me. Uh, but 
Freedom was proactive. And right after I made that call, I got a call a couple of hours later and they said, when are you going to come to Florida? I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's not exactly like I can just jump in a cab and get there. But they said, no, we fly tomorrow. You know, we'll, we'll book you a, a flight and you can come over here tomorrow and we'll have a talk. So the next thing I know, I am on a plane to Florida and met with a whole bunch of people. I do remember really distinctly Eric saying to me, now, obviously, we want to protect the position you are in, still employed by Pulse Data. When you walk through the corridors, don't talk because there are so many blind people in this building who know your voice that it'll leak. So I would sort of sit there with my hands over my mouth, walking through the building, talking to a number of leaders about what might a role for me at Freedom look like. And um, I must say that Lee Hamilton, who was the president and CEO of Freedom, was sensitive to the fact that, you know, if you if you make the jump, you realize there's going to be quite a bit of uh, reaction to this. And are you are you ready for that. And in subsequent days, he would check in to see how I was getting on. And I said, look, you know, I I don't see a problem. People change to competitors all the time. I, I've worked in radio. I've moved up and down the dial all the time. Blind people are entitled to change jobs. So in the end, we worked out that I would be the vice president of blindness hardware product management looking after the PacMate. And I can understand why Lee did that. It was a kind of a good competitive move that somebody who had been championing the Braille note would now be coming to champion the pack mate. That that made a lot of commercial sense from his point of view. And he's absolutely entitled to do that and, and maximize the impact for the company. So I went home very happy with the, the new job and, of course, had to resign. There are not many times in my life when I wish that I could see, but I would have enjoyed seeing the expression on the chief executive of Humanware's face when I came in and uh, you know, basically made the point, you, you can't kick me around like this. And I couldn't tell the story at the time. So you know, I think most blind people who've been there, who've hit whatever the blindness equivalent of the glass ceiling is, know what happens sometimes when when you're not promoted and you you feel pretty sure there's a blindness element to this and and I'm not going to take that so then they um they frog marched me out of the building glenn i i had a uh, they basically did the you are no longer an employee as of now thing and i had a person on either side of me uh, escorting me out of the building and i wasn't allowed to talk to anybody and they bundled me into a cab and sent me away well at <laughs> least they paid for the cab <laughs> they did pay for the cab they did it was all very dramatic but i do remember sparing a thought for russell because keysoft the braille notes Gosh, all those things that Russell had been instrumental in creating, they were a big part of my life. They were something that New Zealand had been very proud of. We had one, we being Pulse Data, had one exporter of the year on several occasions because the Braille Note was doing so well. And so I felt excited about the new challenge, glad that I was getting out of a toxic environment, but really quite distressed about what was happening to Russell's legacy. And I remember saying to the chief executive, this company is hemorrhaging too much institutional knowledge. It is collecting a lot of people in New Zealand who don't have a clue about our technology, our customers, 
the blind community. There is too much hemorrhaging going on. And I indicated that I didn't think he would last six months. I think I was wrong about that. I think he lasted about maybe eight more months. And then they closed down the New Zealand operation and moved headquarters to Canada. So it was a very fortunate thing. I mean, I might have been able to hang on in there in some capacity. Who knows? Maybe when the dust had settled, I may have got the role that I wanted. But I mean, that's speculation. And in the end, I know that I made the right career move for me. And in the end, that's the thing that you have to do when you're acting responsibly and thinking about your future and your family. But I also believe I made the right career move for the blind community. But then, of course, there was the public reaction. And I was aware that there was going to be some public reaction, of course. But my goodness, I was not prepared for how much. It was the dominant topic of conversation in the blind community. The email lists were full of it. They even had a Marlena Lieberg did, I think, a two-hour show on ACB radio discussing my move to freedom and people were speculating about what was going on. Uh, people said I was a traitor. And guys, I did not sign a contract in blood to say that when I went to work for Pulse Data, I was going to work there forever in a day. You know, people are allowed to change jobs. Then Access World wrote an article, which they very um, cleverly, I thought, called the Mosin Excursion. And it was doesn't quite rhyme, but uh, it's close. It, but it was strange because a lot of other blind people have changed from one AT company to another. And it was just another example for me of having to understand the role I had created for myself or that others had created for me and the, the sort of the, the, the responsibilities and burdens that come with it. And I think, you know, even more so than the marital thing, it was almost like for some people, like I defected to Al Qaeda or something. It was just ridiculous. And so that, that really did make it very clear to me the, the kind of role I had. And I was, even I was shocked by it. What could you do differently knowing that you had this kind of role? I'm not responsible for the actions of other people. I'm only responsible for myself. So I don't think there is anything I could have done. Um, it was the right decision. I, I have not had a single day in my life where I have thought, man, I wish I had stayed at Humanware. Not one. Part of it is, I think, a little bit of envy and jealousy for some. Part of it is a genuine sense of being let down. I mean, I remember somebody really emotionally telling me, I bought a braille note because of you, because you were there and you told me it was the best product. And now you're telling me that it's not. And I just feel totally betrayed and let down. And I don't know what to say to that, except it's no different, say, from being a lawyer. When you work for a company, you're, you're obliged to give them the best defense that you can. You know, I think one of the things that made it perhaps more challenging for people to accept me in those new roles was that I had been so straight down the middle with main menu. I never carried favor with anybody there and it didn't matter what I felt about the people involved or whatever. If, if I felt a product had a flaw, I would tell people that I thought the product had a flaw. So transitioning 
into those roles where I'm now working for a specific company, that might have been a little bit of a stretch for some people to kind of adapt to. I think another thing is that people who have never been involved in such a public-facing kind of role, like many of the ones that I've had, particularly at Humanware or Freedom Scientific or IRA, they may not appreciate that even though obviously you are hired to tow the company line in public, hopefully people will remember the main menu days or in more recent times, the blog posts I've written where I have been able to talk about technology, frankly, that I'm not involved in. And I'd like to hope that many might have some confidence that even though I am publicly required to stay loyal in my external communications, you can be absolutely sure that behind the scenes, if there are things publicly that are annoying the heck out of the blind community, frustrating people, I will be on the inside talking about those very things, making merry hell, agitating. I've done those things in all the roles that I've held, but obviously it's not something that people hear about unless they also work for the companies. It's the price you pay. And I don't necessarily expect sympathy because I've been remunerated well for the jobs I've done. And I like to hope that I've done them well, that I've given them 100%. I've done them to the best of my ability. But I have been in there, in the arena, (laughs) agitating and trying to make a difference on the inside. It can be frustrating, but it's also one heck of a privilege. So at Freedom, you did you uh, managed PacMate, and then you also managed uh, the Focus mm. Braille displays, right? Yes. But you also were able to uh, get Freedom to move <laughs> into the world of podcasting. Yes. I think one of the things that made my move to Freedom so unpalatable for some people is that Freedom had a bad reputation for being a little bit aloof and a little bit arrogant. And I call it as I see it. And I mentioned this to Lee Hamilton. You know, I I said, there there are things that we can do to make freedom seem more human because there have always been some incredibly gifted and talented people working at freedom. But in the blindness context, it's one of the larger companies. I used to equate freedom with being like the Microsoft of the blind community. And even though it's just really small uh, in the wider scheme of things, that's how people perceived freedom. And so I said to Lee, one way we could change those perceptions was to start a podcast. And we would use it as a way of informing people of um, what was going on, new products and things. But we'd do some bio pieces. We'd talk to people on staff about how they got there, what drives them, what interests them about doing their job. And we would talk to people using the products in interesting ways. And so in December of 2006, we started FSCast. And uh, you did that for 12 years, give or take. Yes, that's right. Almost 12 years. And we were pretty consistent about getting them out there. And it's quite an interesting body of historical work. All of it's up there. So if you go back to 2006 or early 2007, and you listen to the things that we were talking about, it was a very different technological landscape. But it also makes a lie of those who say that JAWS doesn't innovate. Because when you look through those FS casts 
and you see the way that JAWS has evolved, it's pretty significant. And it's not just that the feature set has evolved, but also I think when JAWS for Windows first came along, it was a very geeky product of necessity because JAWS was hacking, and I use that term in the most positive connotations of the of the term, uh, into the operating system in what were not officially sanctioned ways. And so things could fall over. And over time, Microsoft kind of got the accessibility religion and have done more so in recent years, and it got easier. And so software developers could concentrate on the user experience, making it more friendly, adding little nice touches like the JAWS startup wizard and things that just de-geekified the product. So there's a lot that has gone on. And I sometimes look at the the episode listing of FSCast and it's kind of like a little pocket history of the way these products have evolved. And then there are the things that have just gone. I mean, in 2007 and 2008, it was all about talks and mobile speak and Symbian and Windows Mobile and all those sorts of things. And then, of course, VoiceOver came to the iPhone in 2009 and upended everything. So it's fascinating to go back. And and for people who are interested in tech history, I'd encourage them to do that. Were you one of these guys who got excited about VoiceOver when it first came out? Yes, but I was one of those guys who was measured about it. My concern at the time was you have to put voiceover in some kind of context. There was a screen reader for the Mac called Outspoken, and Outspoken was eventually acquired by Alva. Uh, Berkeley Systems were running it first, and then Outspoken kind of died. So there were no screen readers for the Mac at all. The problem with that from Apple's perspective was that that really put the education market in jeopardy because of legislation that required universities, college campuses to to procure products with the most accessible options. So Mac and education, it's kind of like love and marriage. So there was a real existential risk there. And then on top of that, there was a lawsuit to do with the inaccessibility of iTunes for Windows. And that was also a big problem in education because of iTunes U and the amount of course material that was starting to be rolled out with iTunes U. So people think that Apple did all these things out of the goodness of their heart. And I'm I'm sure they feel good as they should about all the wonderful things they've done. But there was a real business case to get this done. So that's where we get voiceover coming to the iPhone in 2009, a really big game changer of a development. My concern was, first of all, the original version of VoiceOver had no Bluetooth keyboard support and no Braille support. So I was saying to people, let's just see what happens here because you can't be terribly productive. The only way of getting stuff into this thing is to use the double tap on the virtual keyboard method. And that's not particularly efficient. So I was concerned about that. We didn't know how accessible third-party apps would be, so I'm glad that my concern there was completely unfounded. But my worry was they'll do just enough to get regulators and government agencies off their back. They could point to this thing and say, yeah, we've got voiceover in our iPhone and in our other products. We're accessible now. And the uninformed governmental agencies would say, okay, good. We'll keep buying Macs and iPhones and things. 
Now, again, luckily, that was not what happened. We did get Braille support. We got Bluetooth keyboard support. We got more ways to input stuff into the phone. And Apple has consistently improved voiceover over time. I still think that a little bit of measured caution was appropriate. And I'm glad that they have delivered more so than I was expecting. And it's changed many, many people's lives. Yeah, yeah, mine included. But not in the way that I think a lot of people thought. I think a lot of people thought that there would be no no use for PCs any longer. Yes, and I know that Apple has been touting iPad as a laptop replacement, and even sighted people are saying there are constraints in iOS that are preventing the iPad from truly replacing a laptop. I also think there are some constraints in the way that voiceover works in terms of actually producing content. It has got better for producing content. Things like the spelling rotor and a few things that they've added in recent times make it more viable for producing content. But I don't think it's quite there yet. One of the things that I do feel troubled about as people have more choice, and some of those choices are low-cost or free choices, is we must never accept a compromise when it comes to our productivity because it's damned difficult as it is to get the opportunity to work somewhere. The unemployment rate is at a a very low rate in the United States, but I've seen no evidence, for example, that the unemployment of blind people is coming down, even with all these technology innovations. And the reason for that is that a lot of people close their eyes and they think, man, if I couldn't see, I couldn't do this job Therefore, this person in front of me applying for a job can't do it. So when we do get somebody who's willing to give us a go, we must be as productive and efficient as possible. When Jonathan and I get together for our final conversation, we'll cover everything else, including Mosin Consulting, working for Ira, meeting his wife Bonnie, his self-improvement drive, and it wouldn't be a complete interview without a lightning round those things and more on episode nine of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosin story. I'm Glenn Gordon. Thanks for listening.